This podcast is supported by Siemens, your partner for industrial grade AI. Hello, everybody, and welcome to a new episode of our Industrial AI Podcast. My name is Robert Weber, and it's a pleasure to talk to Peter Sieberg. Good morning, Robert. How are you? I'm fine, Peter. What about you? I'm just fine. As you suggested, I'm traveling. I'll tell more about that later on. Yes, it has to do with wonderful slogan about AI needing creative humans, but more to that at the very end. We have a lot of news. Let's get started, Peter. I like to start with robotics and Deep mind, And I found a very interesting article and I have a quote. Together with 33 academic labs, we pooled data from 22 different robot types to create the OpenX embodiment data set and RTX model. And the question then, what but what if we could combine the knowledge across robotics and create a way to train a general purpose robot? So that's the foundation model we always talk about and now DeepMind is going this way for robotics. Mm -hmm. So it's a typical, what should I say, it sounds again like, a, is it an open source slash, I don't know, doing something together for the world, right? It's, you're the specialist on that. that. That means that if one, I mean, we as we talked about, you know, last week, Sorti, BMW, so they produce, uh, I don't want to move away to that, but it's, it's a similar topic, isn't it? It's like one company yep. moving forward and maybe already from the very beginning with many, many persons, listeners of us, which in their free time or maybe partly also paid for by their employer and together they work on something which then not only you know google DeepMind in this case or last week bmw sorry or whoever but the world can make use of it that's that's the base idea behind it isn't it yeah absolutely and i'm very proud because the university of freiburg is part of this group lead by DeepMind. so we should talk a little bit about that with Frank Hutter. Maybe he can tell us some more at our event. But I think, yeah, it's a very interesting approach. Foundation models, big models, general models are coming. And it's very interesting that the robotics uh, speed up this topic, right? Yeah, models won't go away. We'll talk about more of them today again as well. Yeah, I will put the link to the whole article and to some very impressive videos into the show notes. And then I have one more news. With Andrew and Google offer a new course for beginner. It's called the AI Pair Programming and um, with LLMs. And Andrew's quote was, AI Pair Programming is being rapidly adopted by developers to help with tasks across a tech stack from catching bugs to quickly inserting entire code snippets. And the course is free. It takes you one hour to do the course and it's in collaboration with Google. And I think it's very interesting to learn more about pair programming with LLMs. Very interesting. That's what we always talk about, LLMs, pair programming. Very interesting. Yeah, yeah. I think what, what pair means is very much similar like the co-pilot, right? So using, as we've always been saying, correct, you know, AI is a tool and you can use a tool. It's interesting that like half a year ago when we talked about it, and I do have a, a piece on this topic as well. You know, there was still a shitstorm, you know, from the coding community, which is not, again, not anymore, I should say, today. I'm very interested that Andrew is doing that. Uh, there was one, you know, Andrew does this weekly uh, mailing list, and there was actually one time in a very diplomatic way I said I wasn't sure I agreed with him where he was giving an example where it's still important uh, to learn. So he, what he says uh, specifically, uh, if he wants to do a summary of every letter that he's ever written in his newsletter, I can he can copy-paste the letter at one at a time into a large language model. GPT and ask for a summary, but it would be much more efficient for him to write a simple piece of code that iterates over all letters in a database. Now, I say, why would I program a piece of code if I can <laughs> ask a large language model to do what I need? Now, there was no shitstorm. There were only T comments. It always depends on the time of the day that you post something like that. So anyway, very important, dear listeners, do not misunderstand me why we will continue most certainly to need programming skills 
at least also for the background, to make all of this wonderful AI, machine learning, large language models work, it is my firm belief that large language models will provide consumers with capabilities that in the past require programming skills, right? So please do continue to work as a Python or a different programmer. Do not misunderstand. Yeah, sure. Or even do start learning to code if that's what you want to do. You know, that's not what I'm saying, right? But at the same time, I say to other listeners who are not programmers, keep your eyes open. Yes. Look what's happening. Day-to-day -day developments in the large language model space. And guess what? A day later, there's a guy called Carson Ulrich. He's a senior director of artificial intelligence, and he shares a thing called Open Interpreter. It's a package that interacts with GPT-4 or LLMs and provides a natural language interface to your computer's general purpose facilities. What he says is like, for instance, you can ask it to convert all PPTs, think of a newsletter, in the current directory into a PDF. And then, this is very important, it will then write the Python code it needs to execute a task. Wow. This, this was only 24 hours after I wrote it, right? So, anyway, still, nevertheless, happy coding to you coders. I really mean that sincerely. I've been coding myself in the past, you know, 40 years ago, but also at the same time, happy using large language models for you listeners that are non-coders. I have one more quote on LLMs because Jan LeCun was in Munich yeah. and he, he held a presentation and uh, it's very interesting because one headline was Auto-Regressive LLMs Suck. <laughs> <laughs> you saw that? Yeah, yeah I, see, yeah, yeah, I saw that. And he said, Auto-Regressive LLMs are good for writing assistance, first draft generation, stylistic polishing, code writing assistance and then he had a lot a big list of what they're not good for it's producing consistent answers and stuff like that and the conclusion is we are easily fooled by their fluency but they don't know how the world works that's very interesting and now he's on the same track as gary marcus i think yeah um yeah but still you know i'm not I'm not sure that you can use that quote just full stop like that. It <laughs> completely depends on what you want to get out of them. Yeah. You know, and as long as we have been looking at the large language models as an alternative for search engines, yeah, sure. And I and from that perspective, I, I strongly completely agree. What whatever, you know, we need to get the hallucinations out of the large language models, right? I mean, and everybody's working on that. So that's perfectly okay. But what did I just share? I mean, what is what is happening in our world of productivity, we already today uh, can use the large language models in, in a way that gives us a lot of productivity improvement. So it always depends a lot on what you need them for, right? By the way, if I can take it over from here for yeah, sure. a few things. So one is, um, and it's, it's all related, of course, again, in, in this case, I started looking into vector databases. I wasn't sure that I'd heard about him. And I'm not sure that this topic I'm going to dig deeper into, you know, I was going to check it with you, but I'll just share it with you now and also with our listeners for our industrial AI podcast, right? Because so in preparing for updating my force for the German Organization of Engineers, VDI, it's a VDI data science engineer course I'm doing. I'll a little bit more about that later. I signed up for a YouTube video by a company called Essentry. In German, it's about implementing using ChatGPI in your company. Just one, one great example again of what you can very, very well do today already, in which they show how to have ChatGPT access a vector database and get a result for which you would normally, in a bigger company, you would ask your business or analysts, right? You would us, uh, can you please uh, check for me what was last month's revenue of my you know, product manager, product X? Now, uh, what they do is they show with a retrieval plugin, in this case, it's the Pinecone vector database. And that made me think if companies in the future shall be moving from standard, I'm not a specialist on databases, but let's say uh, SQL databases to vector databases, that is already maybe in itself a wrong question. But you know, as far as I understand the topic at the moment, and the question then is, can large language models only access vector databases uh, and provide answers to a non-data scientist like the one I just said? So what is all the talk about the vector database? And then I'll, uh, I won't go further into it. And depending on if you 
listeners say, yeah, that's a great, important topic, do more about it, or maybe it will go away again because <laughs> it's about, no, it could be that it's exclusively for business intelligence, yeah. like what I just said. But let's let's see, maybe we're going to find that's important for us as well. A quick intro, a vector database is you know, a, a database, a system designed to handle vectors. Vectors, what is the talk about these vectors? All the stuff we talk about since a year now, large language models, generative AI, they all rely on what is called vector embeddings. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's like algorithms that are called like word to vec, and they mm -hmm. put words like, you know, Robert, Peter, yep. or whatever into vectors. And the way to, to think about it is maybe in the 3D space, I believe it happens in like a hundred or more dimensional space, which is very difficult for us humans uh, to imagine but if you if you imagine like a 3d space in colors and like rgb colors and we can all understand that in this 3d world we look at it that all variations of green are somewhere sitting close together right and in the same way the word paris will sit close in some kind of dimensional space to the word eiffel tower mm -hmm. That's the way to think of it. I'm, I won't do more than that. Uh, and then I'm going to have a talk with Tobias Stringman. He just said he doesn't have time, but I'll, I'll still look into that. And I did already have an, a preliminary answer as well, because there was Mundar, if I pronounce that correctly, Mundar Al-Shabi, he's machine learning architect, uh, deliver here in Berlin. And he shared a vector database comparison, which is by Emil Fröberg. There's a couple of names, Pinecone, Weaviate, and a couple of other ones. And he said, training the large language model with corporate data, which I had asked, you know, if that was a good alternative, he says that's very expensive. It cannot be easily updated. And he says uh, the alternative solution is using retrieval, uh, you know, like to affect the database. So, so far, so good. As I said, let me know, dear listeners, if you think this is a topic also for us more explicitly related to uh, industrial AI. But why do you think it's important for an industrial application to use that? As I say, it depends. I mean, if the idea is, and, and we are surely thinking along that line that where five years ago, uh, Zap said, you know, ask your machine uh, how it's doing or talk to the machine. But then we want to go further if we're going to expect the machine to really go into its internal. You know, and, and that's, of course, where today I think the, the thinking is, On the left hand is, what was my revenue last month? That's today in an SQL database, you know, some kind of like Excel, a kind of a SQL database. Excel, right? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, Excel <laughs> is still the most, yeah, 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 yeah. most uh, database, so-called database in the world, I believe. That's, that's that way. And we can all imagine somewhere there you do a sum and there's a value and you get that value back. On the right hand, if you're going to ask, you know, maybe you're looking at an MES system. So it's more looking at how is today an MES system, maybe that is what pops to my mind now, is what today is representing the values in a production line, right? All the temperatures and all the pressures and everything. And that is the question. Yeah, there's even not a hypothesis from my side. The question is that if you are then going to be not the person who has 20 years experience in the production line, but you come in as a young uh, person and you have been, you know, dealing with uh, ChatGPT already then for five or 10 years or today even, these young people, they do the by, they want to do that and they want to access, they want to ask ChatGPT, you know, tell me how to put line is doing sure. and then sure. the question line is you know are we going to find ways of doing that or is somebody one of you listeners somewhere at some point in time you know maybe trying things with a vector database and say oh you know i tried it with a vector database and now my time series i put them in a vector database i'm even not sure that it's possible you know so i stop here it's it's only it's only thinking where i know that on the left side on the business intelligence side that's what's happening and these vector databases are really supporting and allowing the large language model to go in there and come back with an answer. So then not only the data scientist, but the person who is not close to the data can just ask the LLM, you know, tell me what is uh, last month's sales. So as far as that. So this was your idea or? My idea. You, yeah, okay. <laughs> 
Sometimes I have these ideas, but I'm very open about it. It's research, not more than that. You know, it's it's not not even research. So you switch from podcast to research now, Peter? No, no, no. It's just a thought. It's okay. a thought that you uh, and we should come to the person with the, the big thought as well. But I was going to give one more, not on this specific topic. I refer to the fact that uh, I'm doing this data science training. I just want to, for whoever could be interested in Dusseldorf, and I want to share who's doing that together with me, because next week when I'm back, I'm going to be in. Dusseldorf, and I'm going to start off this uh, this uh, training, and I'm going to be doing the use case business models implementation, which is really an introduction to a much larger series. Uh, which in the end you get a certificate. You know, it's um, a I data science engineer. Will be followed up by two day sessions by no one other than I'm not sure that you're aware of that Julian Feinauer. Yes, I know. Michael Welch and Oliver Nigman. Yes, who's actually in charge of uh, this course. Julian is doing the data acquisition automation IT. And Michael is doing the integration into the industrial environment, and Oliver is doing the data analysis machine learning. So, dear listener, I'm not sure if there are still seats available. If you're interested, feel free to contact VDI and. Again, as a close here, if any of you also have been thinking of what is the value of maybe of a vector database in our, so in the factory side. So I think we understand that our colleagues in the side of the finance, marketing, that they will be using that. But I'm really interested in learning from you. Contact me, Peter, at uh, AIPod.de, and maybe we can do an interview on that topic. Absolutely, Peter. I have one more important note, because you mentioned your course or your conference in the next week, because we are very proud, because on 24th of January, we will meet in Frankfurt at the Industrial AI event of the Hannover Messe. We are really looking forward to some very interesting guests from Beckhoff, Siemens, Festo, Zülke, Fraunhofer, and many more. I provide the ticket link in the show notes. Please come to our event in January. It's very interesting. We have small groups work together in Frankfurt on business cases, on technology, on use cases. So very interesting. Please come to Frankfurt and we will meet in Frankfurt. Perfect. Looking forward to Yeah, absolutely. What else do you have? We hadn't mentioned Sepp Hochreiter yet. Yes, congrats to Sepp. He received <laughs> the AI, I don't know how it's called, AI Prize or the Prize of German AI Award or something like that. Uh -huh. Yes, he was in Berlin and he was very optimistic about his... <laughs> very optimistic. Yeah, very optimistic about his yeah. about his project to kick out open AI and to make a revolution on large language models. Exactly. You shared the post, right? Yeah, he did. A, he did an interview and just I was just thinking now why he did that interview because the prize is from the German uh, newspaper called Die Welt, uh, The World. Right. And Sepp, which we know for from the very beginning, inventor of LSTM, you know, 25 years, uh, the algorithm for automated translations, other NLP applications. And then in the interview, which I couldn't read because because it was behind a firewall or a pay, paywall. Paywall, not firewall. Which is some kind of firewall as well. Yeah. <laughs> in a translation, not sure if it's correct, but uh, he said something like, we will kick down GPT away. Now, we know Zap does, of course, make always very strong posts, so to say. Quotes. <laughs> Quotes, yeah. And I, but I think he didn't mean like in a negative, derogative way, those stupid people or something. No. No, no at all. I'm sure that he meant to say, as you just said, that Yen Lacan said, you know, these large language models, they are dumb. You know, they're stupid. They do not know the world. I'm sure that that's how he meant. And I translated it. So if it's not, please don't misunderstand what I'm sure Sepp was not saying. And then some comments in on the post that I did, Martin Schiele said, uh, I mean, hey, at least someone standing up, uh, getting it on. Always better to act first and speak later. The other way around often leads to nothing but hot air. Well, let's see. I think I personally believe that if Sepp says something like that, Michael Koff says at least a glimpse of boldness in the European tech market. I'm skeptical, but in this case, I would love to be proven wrong. And maybe one more. There's uh, many, many there. Daniel Tramer says, good luck. Hope there will be competition in the field, but I'm skeptical. There is a lot of open source models doing great or better than GPT-4 in specific fields. So it's not about the model, but the engineering behind OpenAI, which he has to kick away, quote unquote. And that's not 
what he will be capable to do agilely. I'm going to stop here. I think overall there was in this feedback more skepticism. Sure. I mean, I think I was telling my wife explaining what uh, what SAP was trying to do there. And I wasn't sharing it with skepticism, but I was putting it in a similar way to somebody else saying, you know, he's taking on Microsoft and Google and Amazon, which are only representing, you know, 99.9% of the world's LLM today's market, I would think. So, so nevertheless, of course, we have a, you know, you and I, we heard about this idea from Zap in the AI, uh, in the Alps. That was when? Two or three months ago. And and we have seen him and he's completely full of energy and he was so strong about his idea. So having seen how um, how Zap is, um, is thinking about what he's going to do, I think there is going to be something here. And of course, we look forward to have him and his team from the Johannes Kepler University shake up the large language model market. Yeah, I will meet him, uh, I think, tomorrow because I'm in once again in Linz because I have the honor to give a speech about investment in AI and about different countries. And, and I will also record an episode with Sebastian Lehner about this use case with the railway track and the... Oh, yeah, you mentioned last week. Yeah, yeah, yeah I mentioned last week. I will record the episode uh, in Linz with Sebastian. I'm looking forward Forward and I will meet the first time Johannes Brandstetter and talk with him about Microsoft research and why he chose to come back to Linz. Back from Amsterdam to Linz. Yeah. yeah, back from Amsterdam to Linz, yes. Yeah, looking forward to, oh, you're traveling a lot to Linz these yes. days. Not only yeah, Johannes yeah. Brandstetter, but also Robert. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, as I just mentioned, the university, Johannes Kepler, Linz has a, has a very, very good uh, reputation. I suggested at the beginning, when I finish off with a slogan, AI needs creative humans. Yes. How did I get to that one? Yes, so I saw I was walking around this medieval Italian fishing village, um, and now I give special greetings to Philip Passion at Witzenmann, who uh, always likes to joke about Peter as the Dutch guy, you know, going around the world in his recreation of vehicle, I believe it's called in English, right? So there was a wall advertisement. It's actually from the Accademia di Belle Arte di Forgia. And later in the day, this made perfect fit. And there was a huge, wonderful piece, image picture. I think it was the, what's the famous guy who said, everybody wants to be famous, Andy Warhol. Mm -hmm. It looks like Andy Warhol, but probably in combination with a ChatGPT or DALI 2 or 3 or whatever. And uh, and then there was this article on VentureBeat. I'm not going to go too much into details, but in the end they say, you know, nobody knows what this is going to do with us. Give this technology the chance. Don't get rid of people. They were referring to the same company that we just mentioned, uh, Build, I think, sister company of the world who had, they say, had laid off people. So they say, you know, try out what what is going to happen and uh, and this I, I think what was a perfect fit to what I saw here in this medieval city this huge wall advertisement and it says AI needs creative humans and I thought it was a very interesting thought you know if we are going to leave the, the routine work in the future to robots, uh, to artificial intelligence, intelligence, and we as humans can, you know, uh, use more of our brain mass and do more creative work. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Always wonderful when you talk about your all-day experience and what you see and how you combine it with AI. Thanks, Peter. It's always a pleasure to hear that. You're welcome. But now let's switch to the main part. You did an interview, right? Yeah, a couple of weeks ago with, if I pronounce it again correctly, you hear that later with Kurt, Kurt Demarche. And uh, Kurt is from a company called Side Machine from the United States. And we're talking about democratizing industrial data with generative AI. So it's a spot on, again, bringing all these great topics uh, together. Yeah, I mean, we're saying it many times, but I just before we started, I sent you a couple of uh, proposals for podcasts. That there are topics also that are not directly, you know, related to, but but generative uh, large language models are the hot topic. And Side Machine, I think, is one of the bigger companies in the industrial analytics space who have partnered with with Microsoft 
and are making this topic of democratizing. And it's almost like what we've been talking about before, you know, making capabilities available to uh, the people that until now could not, you know, they had a barrier, almost like a firewall again, because they did not have the capability to, to program code. And now these people uh, are given similar uh, capabilities. So that's the topic that I'm talking about with Kurt. Okay, enjoy listening. And uh, Peter, enjoy your vacation, your trip around Europe, best to Italy. Thank you, Robert. My best regards to our listeners as well. And talk to you. See you soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. My guest today is Kurt Demarche. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Kurt is co-founder. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> yeah, I did good. Curtis, co-founder and chief AI officer at Sight Machine. And Kurt and I are going to talk today about democratizing industrial data with generative AI. Hello, Kurt. Good morning. How are you today? I'm fine. Thank you very much. Please introduce yourself, Kurt, to our Industrial AI podcast listeners. Yeah, my name is Kurt Damage, as uh, we, we mentioned. Uh, I am the chief AI officer and one of the co-founders at Sight Machine. And uh, so we're a company that has been around for a little over 10 years now. And we've been working with manufacturers around the world on how we can help them extract their data, transform it into useful formats, and uh, turn that into business value. Oh, more than 10 years. Before we get into the topic of democratization of industrial uh, data with generative AI, maybe let's talk a little bit more about uh, your company, Site Machine, then. So what does Site Machine offer since when we just heard 10 years? To whom do you provide and, and where are you based? Yeah, so we are a manufacturing data platform. Now, of course, there are a lot of folks out there working in manufacturing data these days, but a lot of what we focus on is actually getting down to the plant floor, getting data off of all your different plant floor systems, going sometimes straight to the PLC on machines, but also historians, quality management systems, ERP, individual sensors, whatever it takes uh, to get the data that you need to prove out value. We take that, blend it all together, and put it into a format which is easily understandable by not just your data experts, but something that even operators uh, are able to use, understand, and start to integrate uh, into their process. And so we've been doing this for about 10 years now, as I said, and uh, we are based uh, officially in San Francisco, California. I'm actually uh, in our Ann Arbor, Michigan office, and we have folks uh, scattered around the globe, uh, courtesy of the, the modern uh, era where it's easy to work from anywhere. Uh -huh. Okay, we'll come to that later as well. Okay, then why not tell us a little bit more about your manufacturing data platform that you just introduced to us? Yeah. So we try to get all of the data that is out there uh, because what we've found is over the last 10, 15, 20 years, the history of things like Lean Six Sigma, which have had a good emphasis on data, have mined a lot of the sort of easy value. And the next sort of era of value is going to come from being able to look at the entire system of all of your data so that you can you know, bring together information for both the quality management system and what's happening directly on the plant floor and from your ERP system, which you need to solve that sort of next level of problems. And so we want to have all that data blended together. We also want to make sure it's all in real time. You know, We work with a lot of customers where when they uh, have data-related questions, they may have to go and talk to the IT department or somebody like that, and then sure, you'll get the data in, you know, three to five weeks or something. We want to make it so that you have effectively real-time data as it's being generated, getting it streamed uh, to the users who need it most. And then the, I think the third thing that really is important about what we do is we take a uh, perspective, which we call data first, which is instead of just starting with a single use case or a single problem or a single application, and then you go find the data necessary grab it, solve that one problem, then you repeat that process where you're always application to the data, back to another application, different data set. It's much more efficient today to get all of your data organized in one easy, cleaned up, centralized repository first, and then it make, it's much faster to build lots and lots of applications on that. So 
uh, you're really accelerating your time to value there. Data first sounds great. That's something that uh, one of the AI celebrities, uh, Andrew Wang, you probably know and our listeners know, he's been driving this approach for not sure how long, but maybe you have been driving this approach for actually a lot longer than that. Yeah, we, we're big fans of Andrew Ng, so yeah. <laughs> Sounds good. So why don't you share maybe one or two typical uh, use cases around your uh, manufacturing data platform? Yep. So we go through actually a full spectrum of use cases. Uh, in fact, it's kind of funny. One of our most successful customers has been really focused on what I sometimes call arts and charts, which is you don't necessarily have to go all the way over to predictive and prescriptive analytics. Sometimes it's just more valuable to get your data in the platform where somebody can see and respond to it quickly, where we'll see them, you know, just having the dashboards uh, sitting right next to the end user, uh, you know, the operators on the plant floor, able to see when things are starting to go wrong immediately and to take uh, action rather than two days later when it would have come up um, uh, through the more traditional data gathering approach, and then you wait and talk about it in the morning meeting, uh, things like that. And so we do some sort of arts and charts types of uh, basic visualization all the way over to some of our most advanced analytics. Uh, one of my favorite ones was one where we actually were blending together more traditional supply chain management data with plant floor data to uh, solve uh, scheduling problems. And this was actually for a large dairy processor. And we were able to take the sort of official plans that you know get updated in a traditional sort of uh, ERP timeframe of once per night, uh, but often we're not adapting to the reality of uh, raw materials arriving in a much slower fashion or uh, assets on the production line going down. And so being able to quickly and immediately reschedule in an optimized format so you can either meet or at least get as optimally close as possible to the original plan. And so we can sort of blend the the old school ERP scheduling with on-the-fly adaptation to create the sort of consistent output. So uh, we, we sort of do, yeah, everything from AI down to basic visualization. Okay, we come to the details for that. I understand that uh, you work in different stages in your manufacturing data platform. Mm -hmm. Can you share those with us? Yeah. So just to clarify here, when you say different stages, uh, I could interpret that from a technical perspective of the data we process, but also a uh, more use case oriented, which stages of the manufacturing process. Uh, can you clarify? Yeah, I, I guess it's like from the connecting to the building, analyzing, and just share a little bit of an idea of maybe of how the potential use, I mean, in the end, it's like potential users of your platform listening how are they would they be using your platform yeah so we originally started off with our focus being sort of the core data transformation saying that you know recognizing the value of taking many different data sources in real time blending those together so kind of this i'm going to call it middle stage of any processing pipeline of what was say traditionally called you know etl of course these days etl has gotten a whole lot more complicated, but that initial sort of that, that data transformation stage. But of course, we don't just do data transformation because it doesn't do you any good to just have a wonderful transformation layer if you don't have all the raw data. And so that actually drew us uh, further towards the connect side where we work through all the connectivity going uh, down to the PLC, talking various protocols there, being able to interface with a large number of quality management systems, MES, ERP, et cetera. So building all those connectors to get data from traditional plant floor devices. And of course, you know, we work in an ecosystem today where many customers have already done that basic connectivity and have data up to cloud. So that means that we work with and partner with many cloud providers so we can extract the data there. So, you know, we, we've had to go back 
to the data sources and make sure that we can collect as many different data sources as possible. And then that gets us to what I mentioned earlier, the the ETL pipeline that we have to get everything blended and transformed and cleaned up in real time. And then, of course, we have to solve the next problem after that, which is after you have this wonderful data set, what do you do with it? Data is no good unless you create business value with it. And so that then led us into all of the AI, machine learning, visualization tools, uh, other workflows just to help uh, manufacturers. And so that does give us the sort of full end-to-end connectivity, data wrangling all the way through to the final end-user applications technology stack. Sounds great. So when then or where does then you're in charge of AI, where does AI, where does machine learning and come in? And maybe you can give us a, an example of an application use case or machine learning technology example. Yeah. So we break that up into a couple different uh, scenarios. So one is actually on the initial ingestion side where this is less visible often to many of our customers, but when you have very large volumes of uh, a lot of different types of data, getting that efficiently blended together either is going to take a lot of manual work or based on our decade of experience, we have started to develop our own algorithms to help automatically detect and arrange and organize what types of data you have so you can get it into that data pipeline, monitor it, and ensure that you have a high-quality output. So one of the most important parts that we actually have is not visible to folks where we're just using AI to make sure that you have good, clean data. Now, what more people will see is when we're using AI at the application layer in terms of how we use the data then to deliver value to the operators and engineers on the plant floor. And so we have some what we call out-of-the-box applications. These could be things like our cookbooks application, which is a recommendation tool that is looking at real-time data on the production plant floor and trying to understand where you have your current machine settings today, how that compares to ideal settings in the past, and then makes recommendations to the operators on how they could be uh, optimally running their machines. Um, so we have things like that, which are fairly out of the box in our application. But we also do other sort of customized analytics for uh, very specific use cases. Uh, so for example, we have a customer who is a uh, magnet wire manufacturer. So magnet wire is exploding in demand right now with electrical uh, electric vehicles. And uh, we're helping them with quality. And they have a lot of these cases where it's really funny to sort of talk with them because the engineering teams often have sort of an idea. Everybody has their own sort of pet interest of what they want to work on next. But you always get then these battles between the engineers of where they should be focusing their attention. And we've been able to actually come in with this new analytic for them, which looks at their production processes and actually makes recommendations to them to say, hey, you know, among the many opportunities you have today, this is what the algorithm says would be the most productive area, would give you the, the, the most benefit, least cost uh, in order to do your process improvements. And so that's been very tailored to their uh, machines, their production lines, their processes, but still based on that same underlying data platform that, that we provide. So we can do uh, uh, customized work for them uh, too. The uh, the first phase you mentioned, the detecting, sounds a bit like only now, what, a couple of weeks, uh, old chat GPT, forgot the actual word of it, uh, recognizing whatever a file, typically CSV, I will give it, Uh, and will tell me, okay, this is sound, seems to be like a manufacturing file with rows and columns X, Y, Z. And again, here, we'll come to that later. That's the actual theme for today. But you, you have been doing that again also probably for maybe since the beginning or at least since, uh, since a longer time detecting the, the quality and the quantity of the data that is uh, available. Yeah, exactly. It's uh, started off with us doing it all manually by hand. The customer, you know, gives us a CSV file or we connect to their database or, you know, go to their OPC server or something like that and pull the data. And then over time, you start to uh, 
write a little bit of automation for it. And then you start to figure out the rough parameters to build up some algorithms, train them on your historical data, and you know, just sort of evolves to the point where you can start to create a lot of tooling and let the machine learning handle it. Now, of course, I don't want to overhype AI. I think we're perhaps even entering an era where AI is getting so overhyped and expectations are getting so big that uh, it could end up hurting the market. But So I don't want to overhype it, but it is pretty cool what we are now able to do with detecting and uh, responding uh, with uh, machine learning. Very good. I'll come to the OPC a bit later on as well uh, for specific reasons. I want to stay a little bit longer here in the area. We don't want to go in too much detail of when talking about machine learning, but I saw that you are using several kinds of approaches. I saw gradient boosting. I saw support factor machines, which I have not worked with myself, but I do recognize colleagues having worked with them years ago. I haven't used the genetic algorithms myself, Monte Carlo simulation. I know also from uh, chess engines, etc. Again, without needing to go into the details again who will or where is it again we're going to come to the user of your solution later on but is the user celesting or is, is that again an algorithm an algorithm are you running different approaches in parallel and whatever is the best for the specific use case will will be chosen how does that work Yeah, a lot of it is what is the best solution. And I do think this is an important flexibility that we have where since we aren't coming out as an AI algorithm company, really Sight Machine is about having AI-ready data. We're focused on the input into those. And that gives us that flexibility to choose whichever algorithm is going to be the best fit. Now, of course, some of that, you know, when we're creating products that are going to be out of the box for everybody, yes, Sight Machine is going to choose that. Uh, and, you know, customers don't get to just say, oh, well, we know your optimizer is an SVM. I would much rather use a random forest. Uh, so please change it. We, we don't uh, do it that level. But when we're doing more of the customized applications, you know, we do actually work and collaborate with the customer. Now, a lot of those customers are just much more on the end user focus. And they're sort of, I don't care, just give me the most accurate, the best fit. But we do also work with customer data science teams, and some of them will have a, a more a stronger opinion about how they would like us to tackle the problem. You already mentioned availability for the cloud. Is this exclusive partnership and or how about Edge if uh, people want, if potential customers want so? So with the way Site Machine is architected, we do have Edge support. In fact, we have an Edge device at every customer. And the reason for that is, of course, we're pulling data from the manufacturing plant floor. So we need something down on the plant floor to push the data up to the cloud. Uh, you know, obviously, there's massive uh, security implications if we were to try to go from the cloud and pull. So we do have an edge device. There is, I'm going to say, a modest amount of compute there. And so we can do lightweight work at the edge. Now, it's not designed at the same level of here's a gigantic compute cluster for training a machine learning model, but we can do uh, some lightweight work. Work there. We're also working with other partners, though, where we may need a little bit more of a um, heavier edge compute uh, availability. And so working with companies like Siemens has been the most recent one uh, taking advantage of some of their technology uh, at the edge. Um, but we still push a lot of stuff up to the cloud very strong partnership with Microsoft there. And that's where we try to do the heavy lifting for anything that's going to require a lot of compute. Uh, we also uh, really try to put as much stuff up in the cloud too, so then it becomes available to everyone within the organization, uh, not just somebody in the sort of fall four walls of the manufacturing plant. Okay. So what industries do you sell your solutions then? What are your typical customers? Is it uh, more in discrete? Is it in process as well or both of them? So we're not necessarily fit to just one or the other. We've sold uh, to, you know, everyone from, you know, chemical manufacturing to auto companies. And so we, we run the full gamut. What I would say is kind of interesting. We've had the most traction recently, kind of in these companies that blur the line. So a lot of consumer packaged goods, food processing, that sort of thing, where technically there is a discrete object moving down the production line, but often at such a high volume of production that starts to look much more continuous behaves kind of like a, a continuous flow process. So the fact that we can sort of float between the two is powerful for us. 
One other thing that I would also uh, mention is we often work on production lines that kind of go from one type to the next, where we might have a continuous flow going to a batch process, going back to a continuous flow, going to discrete for final packaging. And so we, we get a lot of variety. Now, uh, listeners of the Industria podcast may have heard this before, but I actually was in, in charge That's probably now 10 years ago of, in that case, it was discreet and the person opposite of me was in charge of process. And we had to decide, you know, who's going to take, where, where's the line? It's exactly that line that you talk about. And I think we said that as soon as fluid out of process, doesn't matter if it's chemical or Coca-Cola, as soon as it gets bottled, being packaged, as uh, I believe, that's where we said That's, that's where the line is. Now, I was, it's not about sharing this information with our listeners. It's more about, does that mean that the approach in one or the other, or exactly where the process is changing, is actually different? I mean, from the perspective of the, the capabilities of the platform? So that, that's a really good question. For capabilities of the platform, we've really tried hard to engineer and ensure that you can get the same types of insights wherever you are. But as you point out, this is a huge challenge where, for example, a recent customer that we, we've had is exactly the same thing where you're going through one type of process. There is some sort of distinction kind of from the uh, processing to the packaging line or something like that. You have to draw the line. But when you're somebody like us, where we say we are trying to give you the system-wide view, uh, you're not just looking at packaging. You're not just looking at processing. You want to understand how packaging affects processing or processing affects packaging. Uh, you need to make sure you have those capabilities. And so we've invested a lot of time and effort into making sure that we can offer the same features and offer that same traceability across the somewhat uh, arbitrary boundaries of the manufacturing line, or even not arbitrary, very clear boundaries. We want to make sure that you can uh, monitor the entire system, no matter what's happening. Okay. What are the typical users then of your solution? Let's say pre-factory uh, co-pilot, which we'll talk about later. Yeah. Our typical user was either a process engineer or a quality engineer. So somebody who is, you know, on the plant floor, clearly, but often somebody with a little bit of data savvy mindset so that, uh, you know, they were somebody who in the past was at least connecting to, say, the historian and looking at some basic charts or uh, maybe even did a little bit of introductory statistics types of things. But, you know, we're now starting to stretch beyond the uh, ability to just stare at charts in their history historian and wanted uh, to better understand and uh, solve problems by th getting that system-wide, multiple different data source uh, type of view. Ose, before we're going to get into the factory co-pilot uh, theme for today, democratizing industrial data, what makes you unique? What is your USP? Why should I, why should the listener consider maybe to, to visit your website and get a little bit more information? Yeah. So we do have this approach to doing our data modeling, which is that data first approach where we want to ensure that we're not just giving you some data for an application. We want this to be a data foundation, this tool, which then enables many, many, many use cases. And I would say that's the key differentiator in terms of overall approach. Now we can also go down into some of the underlying technology uh, because we have been trying to connect to so many different types of data sources. We have a pretty good, a fairly robust set of different connectors to be able to extract data. We have uh, lots of experience just working through, we'll call it the IT security process of accessing data. So as an organization, we're uh, pretty good. Our technology stack has been designed to uh, address common uh, concerns from IT security groups. Our ETL pipeline is really focused on the types of data problems you would have as a manufacturer. If you want to have real time data, which can also handle a lot of out-of-order data, for example, quality samples, 
coming in late, things like that. So a lot of out of order, uh, reordering of your data, stateful transformations, which is maybe just a big mouthful for things like being able to do anomaly detection or other sort of data wrangling to clean up your data as the data is streaming through. Uh, and of course, real-time blending of multiple data sources. So the ETL engine we have is, is pretty cool too. But as I said at the start here, I, I think the fundamental difference for say an end user is really our philosophy, our approach, the way that your data is going to come out of this with this data first foundation for other applications. Okay, and that's where I had I already announced kind of at this uh, this follow up question you mentioned connectors, but then it's more about the OPC UA when you talk about contextualized data foundation. And you know, I'm involved in OPC Foundation podcast and OPC way as a as an architecture. You mentioned that you are capable of reading from OPC UA data sources in addition to other connectors, whatever they are. I'm not sure in Profibus, Profinet. I think there's typical European, American market approach differences there. But how about uh, does does OPC UA play a role, or and in the markets in which you are working today, and or do you use your own kind of contextualized data foundation approach? Yep, for OPC, especially OPC UA. It's music to our ears when we hear that the uh, customer has data sources that are OPC UA. It's uh, just so much easier to connect, um, you know, OPC DA, uh, you know, that's a little bit more problematic, of course, given uh, the The original uh, Windows um, uh, security issues and stuff like that that you run into commonly. But I I won't rant about OPC DA here. OPC UA, though, easy to get access to. It's got some nice security uh, protocols in there, too, for those who uh, care about security. Easy to explore. Explore. Like I mentioned before, a lot of what we're doing is the sort of AI work where we need to sort of discover which data uh, fields are available. And so that ability to easily walk the sort of overall hierarchy. So if they don't have a predefined data model or data schema, we can more easily discover what is there and then help them formulate those schemas, et cetera. And so, you know, OPC is not required uh, for us, but uh, certainly when we see that, it makes everybody's life a whole lot easier and really accessible. Projects. Perfect. We completely agree on that. I mean, independent of, but you know, I've said in the past, you know, OPC UA makes your data fly. You know, typically when you when you when you start, I mean, and it, that is again different. If maybe uh, you're using your solution because you do exactly the same, you know, the data first, and maybe it's not going to take necessarily whatever of nine weeks that you have for a small project. Maybe you're not necessarily going to need the typical eighty percent of, you know, do I have data? What is the quality, etc. 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 And I've always said, if I've, I heard you exactly say the same. If you have OPC UA, you can just start immediately by looking at the information model, and like you know, ten minutes later, uh, if it's an hour later, doesn't matter. Um, you're starting. So we could, we strongly agree there. Very good. Now let's come to you. Introduced thing. July it was a solution called Site Machine. Uh, factory co-pilot of which you say democratizes industrial data with generative AI. Can you give us a quick first introduction, please? Yeah, so we are bringing this out as a way to start bridging the gap between who is using the data today and who could really get some of the most value out of that data. And as I had mentioned before, a lot of our end users today are the process engineers or the quality engineers or people who um, have been the, we'll call it the traditional data users, but we're trying to get that into the hands of people who are not typically thinking at that level. And one of the obstacles that we sort of saw is folks who just kind of look at the data system and say, eh, I don't really know how to use that. I don't understand that. That's not really my thing. And so how do we actually change this data into a, or change the interface into a way that everybody can feel very interested and able to ask questions. And so sort of to turn it into this, here's an expert here that you can just type and ask a question and get an answer. And one of the really cool things that we have found beyond doing things like more traditional UI user experience research is when you can work with something like a chat GPT type of interface, suddenly people are realizing, hey, I can 
take this question and do something really silly with it. Like, you know, have it reframe the answer like a country music song or talking like a pirate or something like that. And suddenly people are thinking, oh, hey, you wrote it as a country music song. Can you also make it write it as a rap song? And now, obviously, if you're doing that with your manufacturing data, you know, it's not directly going to create value, but it suddenly flipped the script where instead of somebody saying, oh, data, it's not for me. Uh, you know, I'm intimidated. I don't want to touch that too. They're actually wanting to get in and starting to play with their data. And it just breaks down those barriers that were in place in the past. Very good. Yeah, I completely hear what you say. So it's almost implicitly means, well, but the question still is, who are the users now? I mean, what is, is it that you're targeting? Is a new solution, understand? The same as before or typically more other? I mean, you mentioned before the process engineer, quality engineer, <clears throat> they are probably still, uh, you know, your target audience. But uh, will other kinds of users be using this solution as well? So we currently have two different users in the early testing and use of this. One are the folks who are commonly not using the data in the first place is often operators, maybe on the second shift who are, aren't necessarily interacting with the engineering team, folks like that who don't have that expert to go talk to and weren't using data through the traditional interfaces. But now they can just go and ask a question by typing a question into this interface, as opposed to having to understand how to use all the different site machines tools. And so we're opening things up to people who weren't using it, such as operators on the plant floor. The second use case that we're seeing is actually the same traditional engineering users, where maybe there was somebody who had to come in an hour early to pull down this data, aggregate, synthesize information to be ready for the morning meeting. Well, now instead of having to do this all as a manual process, it can much more easily go through and just aggregate the information, sort of write the report for you so that you're ready right away for that morning meeting. So you can kind of uh, more, more efficiently synthesize information. Right. So it's still the traditional plus, or so you're extending your target users, actually. You mentioned typing. Yes, I can imagine. How about talking? How about talking to whatever, talking to the plant, so to say? And if, if we talk about talking, how about languages? Do I today, have I in the past, have you been providing Uh, English only? I mean, how about other languages, Spanish, German, French, etc.? Yep. Excellent question, because we have been working on both the talking side and the multilingual side. Uh, so today you can actually do text-to-speech if you have it built into, well, of course, you know, most uh, computers these days, you can just hit a button and do uh, text-to-speech and then do that with our Uh, interface and it will reply. So that is an option or it is kind of neat. You can do that right on your phone. If you go to a co-pilot application, just kind of go there, hit the button, ask the question. So you can imagine being, say, in the car, you want to be properly hands-free, but you want to ask a quick question about, you know, is this happening right now? Technically, you could do that. Hopefully, you're keeping your eyes on the road too, but uh, that is now uh, an option. That said, we have not gone super deep. There have been a couple side conversations with other vendors who do things like the walkie-talkies for the plant floor sort of thing. Can we integrate with that? Uh, so there's some interesting opportunity there that I see in the future, but we don't have anything deployed today. What though also is really cool is the multi-language, uh, multilingual parts here. For example, the, the magnet wire plant that we've been working with, I mentioned before, is uh, in Mexico. We have, therefore, a lot of folks who are going to speak Spanish. And with our interface, one of the first steps it does is checks which language it is and handles that appropriately. So if you wanted to ask a question in Spanish and also make sure it's replying in Spanish, uh, that, that is fully supported uh, today. And so it's still something that we are testing to make sure it works uh, since we are relying on OpenAI uh, on ChatGPT to do that translation. And sometimes, you know, these language models are not necessarily trained on manufacturing jargon. And so you run into some issues even like within English, if you ask it about performance, performance could be a generic statement about 
hey, how is stuff working? Or it can mean like capital P uh, performance in an OEE type of sense. And so making sure that things like that translate properly. And so we're still working through a little bit of that to make sure that the edge cases of manufacturing jargon translate correctly. Uh, but today you can you know do something like ask a question in Spanish and German and French and whatever uh, language you uh, uh, may want to try. Muy bien, sehr gut. <laughs> yeah, and of course, I mean, the topic of the languages is a, in relation to the large language models is a topic for itself, where we as, let's say, a global community independent of manufacturing probably want to make sure that we're going to continue to have, not sure how many we have, 150, 200, probably even more dialects, maybe a thousand, that they're not going to die out because we've been doing everything. And that's the next question. Everything has been uh, trained uh, on English mainly, not exclusively. So, but your solution then typically is what? Is then also, as you mentioned, uh, your partner, Microsoft, OpenAI, has been trained, ha has a large language model, I assume, as a basis, but has been trained in addition on specifically customer data as well? Yeah, and so it's trained on a combination of customer data and then, of course, the core large language models. So specifically, we use GPT-4 uh, underneath the hood. Uh, now, I should, of course mention here that although we feed it a lot of data from customers, that is all done sort of locally within a deployment and through a combination of, you know, sort of uh, model tuning and prompt engineering so that none of that data then goes into anything that can be retrained on uh, chat GPT someday. So obviously you're not going to just type in something uh, a year from now and suddenly d discover that you're confidential information is somehow leaked out. So we do take that part very, very, very seriously. Uh, but yeah, a lot of our effort then goes into how do we take that general purpose large language model and fit it with the necessary data and know-how of manufacturing to solve these problems. Very good. Yeah, we've all heard about the uh, colleagues from Samsung, who probably were the first, at least we heard about it. Um, something else happened within there. We, we don't want that to take place. Now, your colleague, co-founder, John Sober, had a quote, AI can't work with raw factory data. AI needs to fully contextualize data. You want to comment on that statement from John? Yeah, there's a lot going on in that statement. Biggest thing that we are really trying to address when we are making our data AI ready is you can't just take a whole bunch of CSV files, Parquet files, whatever you have, shove it into an algorithm and just hope that it magically uh, figures things out. So a lot of what we're doing when we're getting our data AI ready is trying to blend things together into a coherent uh, a format so that it has the necessary context to minimize the spurious correlations, to clean up the types of uh, data anomalies that are going to trip up an algorithm, uh, et cetera, and then also make sure that we are doing the analysis in a way that takes advantage of that context and Uh, can uh, be the, the best fit to the final output. So certainly we can dig into some of those topics a little bit more, but fundamentally, if you go back to the early sort of big data era, there was sort of this idea of, hey, just get lots and lots of data, shove it into a neural net, and magic is going to occur. And I think, you know, within a year or two, people started to figure out, oh, wait, that's nothing more than a uh, spurious correlation engine. Yeah, yeah, right. Didn't take me 10, 10 years. It was <laughs> exactly. Only 10 minutes, yeah, right. It was sounded very much like, a, at that time, a marketing a speak of, <laughs> of specific companies. Kurt, thank you very much. Tell us a little bit more about your company, company size, maybe global representation. You, you already mentioned one, two pieces. Not sure, maybe you're looking even for new colleagues. Uh, if so, where and what capabilities should they bring? Yeah, so we are a global organization. It's kind of hard to be in manufacturing without being global these days. So I believe we have representation around the world, around the time zones. In total, we are about 160 people. 
and that is heavily based San Francisco for our engineering team. A lot of our, uh, we call them the outcomes team, but sort of data engineers, data architects, continuous improvement, Six Sigma uh, types of folks are based in Michigan. We have a, a nice little cluster of folks in the UK, but then uh, as I mentioned before, we're also just scattered around uh, the world uh, wherever we find the talent. Sounds great. Coming to a close. So what, Dennis, as far as you see the status of this democratizing industrial data with generative AI in different parts of the world? I mean, I believe you're one of the first, if not the first. I feel happy to confirm that. Is it the U.S. only today? I mean, an exception of the fact that you are global. Is What do you see happening in China, Asia? Have you seen things in Europe, UK, you just mentioned? And from your perspective, how is then Gen AI going to change the industrial AI world over the next five, 10 years? Yeah, it's going to be very interesting because we have everything from variable regulatory rules, which are going to be changing a whole lot as people are really becoming, I'm going to say it's aware of how much data AI consumes and the potential risks. I think uh, AI has been, you know, these these risks are nothing new, but suddenly uh, ChatGPT brought it into a format where people, uh, individuals can start to see that. So obviously anything that, you know, I speculate about is subject to uh, regulatory uh, issues that uh, may be coming up in the future. But l let's just uh, assume that we uh, continue to have a pro-AI regulatory environment. I think a lot of what we're going to start to see is a little bit more appreciation for what it can and cannot do. It, it has been really interesting to see, even with things like ChatGPT, how people describe it has been so different. Where in the past, you would have, for example, uh, seen somebody write a blog post about some AI for helping them make investments in the stock market. And they would talk about their algorithm and how it's helping make decisions. But it's fascinating. Now they talk about, I gave ChatGPT $20,000 to make an investment as though ChatGPT is then going to walk down the street to the bank and, you know, make an investment. And so this personification of AI is really interesting to see how that's going to change here in the next, you know, few years. Are people actually going to look at even, you know, for Sight Machine, are they going to sort of look at our co-pilot as an expert that they are talking to, or are they just going to treat it more like a traditional chat bot that you may have had for customer service or something like that for the last 10 years? And so we want it to be as democratized, as feeling sort of human as possible to break down those barriers, but at the same time, uh, recognizing that there are limitations to this. You can't just ask it anything and it will magically figure it out. We have to kind of put those skills in underneath the hood to make sure it has the data, to make sure that we're controlling the way it knows how to answer it to ensure the accuracy things like that. And so a lot of what we're trying to figure out right now is how to balance that, you know, ensuring people feel comfortable that this is your expert partner, but not missing out on the fact that it is not actually a human in the background that somehow magically is omniscient and can answer everything. And so we're doing a lot of work there trying to understand, uh, understand that. Great, thank you very much. Closing off on uh, this notification of personification, which I interpret as, you know, like a, a personal assistant who will be helping not only the people you said before, you know, the specialists, but also the people who have been a lot further away from the data. Thank you very much for that. So listeners who want to get in touch with you can best do so. You suggested on LinkedIn, uh, it's Kurt with a K, K-U-R-T, and then there's a space, D-E-M-A-A-G-D, although you pronounce it as the Marge you suggested. Otherwise, if you, dear listeners, if you have any questions, comments, as always, please send a, a short email to peter at aipod.de. Uh, great. You stay with us so far. Looking forward to have you with us again. And Kurt, thank you very much. Have a nice day. Thank you. My pleasure, Peter.